Welcome to the History of the Americans podcast, episode 128. I'm your host, Jack Henneman, and I'm recording this episode on September 21st, 2023, in Princeton, New Jersey. We are telling the history of the lands now encompassed by the United States from the beginning without presentism. This episode is a sidebar, which is our term for an episode that's off the timeline of the history of the Americans. I'm in the middle of a, another big round of travel, both work and fun. The fun part starts tonight. I'm flying to Poland for a week with a couple of lads from college. I'll probably have something to say about that when I get back. I have, however, spent most of the last two weeks caught up in work work. I recorded the last episode early in the morning in a hotel room in California. A couple of you reported that I sounded tired or down. And actually, I, I was. Even history podcasters aren't superhuman. Of course, all this has cut into research and writing time as well, so this episode's a bit of a cheat. It's mostly material I wrote 40 years ago. Longstanding and attentive listeners know that I say that I'm not a historian. One of the reasons is that unlike professional historians, I don't create new historical knowledge. This podcast is actually about the one time that I did. This episode is also a rare example of me being inspired by current events. Those of you who follow progressives in media or especially on history Twitter may have noticed that off and on in the past year, something called the Comstock Act has been popping up in the discourse. The Comstock Act, passed in 1873 by the federal government and mimicked by a fair number of state statutes, banned from interstate commerce not only birth control devices, but information about birth control. The Comstock Act has been narrowed by the courts considerably and hasn't been enforced by the federal government since the 1930s, but it's still on the books. In the wake of last summer's Dobbs decision, social conservative litigants are trying to revivify the Comstock Act to regulate the interstate transport of drugs that induce abortions. If you Google around, you can see articles on the subject and a fair number of mentions on Twitter. All of this reminded me that in the fall of 1981, 42 years ago, for those of you who know math and still astonishing to me, I wrote my junior year independent paper on the Comstock Act and the importance of the First Amendment and emerging free speech jurisprudence and the eventual legalization of information about birth control. Speech about birth control was legalized because of a collaboration between Roger Baldwin's American Civil Liberties Union and Margaret Sanger's American Birth Control League 30 years before the Supreme Court held in the Griswold case in 1965 that laws banning birth control for married couples were unconstitutional. Anyway, I actually still have that paper, in hard copy, of course, and when I read it for the first time in at least 40 years, I realized that it was pretty good and might make a timely sidebar episode for the history of the Americans. It was then, anyway, original work, insofar as I found out about the collaboration while mucking around in the ACLU archives, which had been donated to Princeton's library, and nobody had written on the subject up to that point. I'll read it to you with very few edits, without the footnotes and calling out a few short quotations. 
and leave it up to you to decide whether I had a future in history podcasting even before anybody knew what history podcasting was. Before we get to that, it should be said that I know this episode will not be for everyone. Even though it covers events from a century ago, it's more closely connected to political arguments today than the other sidebars I have done. I hope you find it interesting, but I'll understand completely if you skip it and demand we get back to the 17th century. That will happen soon enough. Now to the 21-year-old me, quoting my paper, The American Civil Liberties Union and the Movement to Legalize Birth Control, 1922 to 1937. Margaret Sanger's National Committee on Federal Legislation for Birth Control and Roger Baldwin's American Civil Liberties Union occupied adjacent buildings in the 100 block of New York's Fifth Avenue during the Roaring Twenties and the Depression Thirties. It was a geographical accident that made convenient a relationship that helped to alter social and sexual attitudes all across America. During these early crucial years of the movement for legal contraception, the ACLU provided the birth controllers with counsel and advice in and out of court. Baldwin and Sanger were friends, and they respected each other. The informal moral and political support Baldwin lent Sanger's effort was not insignificant. As early as 1916, before he was involved with the union, Baldwin and the satirical cartoonist Robert Minor escorted Sanger through an angry mob to a lecture in St. Louis. Over the next 20 years, the role of the ACLU in birth control politics would grow as the union became more inclined to defend not only advocates of contraception, but purveyors of devices and practitioners at birth control clinics. Back to old me. Robert Minor, known as Fighting Bob Minor, was an interesting figure in his own light. I'll post a link to his Wikipedia entry in the episode notes on the website for your convenience. Back to young me. The movement to legalize contraception posed unusual challenges to civil libertarians for two reasons. The nature of birth control as a technical subject and the motivations of those who oppose legal birth control. Before it is possible to examine the role the ACLU played, it's necessary to briefly sketch the history of the birth control movement in this country. In 1800, a married woman bore an average of 7.04 children over her lifetime. By 1900, that figure had fallen to 3.56 children, virtually halved. Some historians have attributed such a dramatic decline to a later average age of marriage although there have been scattered studies to support the theory. Most showed weak relationships, and late marriage has been largely discarded as a major influence over the fertility rate. Interjection. We now know that one of the influences over fertility, not just here but everywhere, is education of women. But that, I think, was less explored when I was writing this paper 40 years ago. Back to young me. In fact, it was very probably the wide availability of information about contraception, usually packed into the corners of books with titles like Moral Physiology, that led to the decline in fertility. A great deal of literature was imported from Europe. At the age of 17, John Stuart Mill spent several days in jail for distributing diabolical handbills, which urged workers to practice coitus interruptus, 
and described how to use a vaginal sponge as a contraceptive. By the Civil War, physicians had publicly endorsed withdrawal, spermicidal douches, the vaginal diaphragm or pessary, and periodic abstinence. In 1837, Charles Goodyear learned to vulcanize rubber. The condom became cheap and, when ethically manufactured, effective. Douching after intercourse, which, according to a study conducted in 1959, reduces the chance of pregnancy about 80%, became very popular among the American middle class because it's simple and can be disguised as hygiene. Other methods were available. These were tiny sponges that could be soaked in some mild acid or antiseptic solution in place near the cervix. And there was a vaginal suppository of cocoa butter and 10% of boric and tannic acids. As is evident, a great many of the techniques described above, and it's by no means a complete list, could be manufactured or at least improvised at home. Information became the most valuable tool the birth controllers employed, Control of such information would have serious implications for civil libertarians during the 1920s. The final third of the 19th century saw a transformation of public opinion about birth control. In 1900, despite widespread discussion of contraception in print during the middle decades of the 19th century, the law, respectable opinion, and organized medicine were uniting and condemning contraceptive practice. The legal underpinnings were written into the Comstock Act of 1873, which declared a ban on all overtly contraceptive devices and pronounced any information that would facilitate contraception obscene. No longer could literature on family planning be sent over interstate lines or through the mails. Many states, particularly in New England, followed suit and forbid hand-to-hand -hand or verbal dissemination of birth control information within their borders. According to a flyer Sanger's group printed, as late as July 1931, 21 states have obscenity laws while specifically forbidding the dissemination of contraceptive information. Nine states in the District of Columbia make no exceptions for physicians. Connecticut forbids its citizens to practice contraception, and no contraceptive knowledge can be brought into the state of Colorado. The political impetus for such legislation came from the moral purists and early feminists who emerged as a powerful political force during Reconstruction. During the 1840s, the rise of the abolitionist movement spawned a group of dynamic activist women— there were those who attacked them for leaving their homes, even to fight slavery. As a result of criticism, many of these women abolitionists became feminists after the war. They believed that justice required a single standard of sexual morality, an associated freer sexuality with the selfish appetites of men who lacked respect for women. An anti-vice movement arose to oppose any effort to liberalize sexual morality. When elements within organized medicine proposed the legalization and regulation of prostitution to control venereal disease, Susan B. Anthony led an intense lobbying effort to defeat the idea. As soon as the moral reformers targeted birth controllers as morally suspicious, awesome political power was arrayed against contraception. In early 1873, an activist in the Young Men's Christian Association named Anthony Comstock 
managed to push through Congress the Act for the Suppression of Trade in and Circulation of Obscene Literature and Articles of Immoral Use. The Comstock Act closed loopholes in legislation the Congress had passed the year before to restrict the circulation of obscene material by mail. It was now a felony to, quote, sell or lend or give away or in any manner exhibit, publish or offer to publish in any manner or have in one's possession for any purpose or purposes. Any obscene book, pamphlet, paper, writing, advertisement, circular, print, picture, drawing, or other representation figure or image, on or of paper or other material, or any cast, instrument, or other article of an immoral nature, or any drug or medicine, or any article, whatever, for the prevention of conception, or for the causing unlawful abortion, or advertise same for sale. Seems pretty comprehensive. In 1926, laws against contraception were on the books in 24 states, and 22 others had enacted laws that did not specifically mention contraception, but were interpreted to include it because of the federal law. Comstock was a moral crusader of the most annoying sort. Comstockery survived as a descriptive noun well into the 20th century. Traveling as a vice inspector, Comstock employed trickery and entrapment to snare physicians and amateur advocates of birth control. He could not imagine anyone giving birth control information for a legitimate reason. Comstock's zeal arose, however, from fundamentally humanitarian impulses. Although feminists today embrace contraception as liberating technology, actually everybody does, its 19th century image was sufficiently tarnished to attract opposition even from people who considered themselves modern or liberal. Moreover, proponents of contraception were inept at marketing. Unfortunately, purity crusaders associated contraception with prostitution in part because vice emporiums served as retail outlets for birth control devices. And finally, the general public very often confused or did not recognize the differences between birth control and abortion. As late as 1925, James M. Curley, mayor of Boston, wrote to the ACLU, quote, You and your allies call this crime against civilization and the race birth control, a pleasant-sounding euphemism for birth prevention which is merely the crime banned in all lands, among all peoples, by all the codes, secular and sacred, under the ugly name of abortion. As a result, good people from the educated classes, as well as moralists, lined up to oppose legal contraception. The Roman Catholic Church and organizations associated with it provided such powerful opposition to birth control there were some cities where advocates could not even campaign to repeal the laws regarding contraception, much less disseminate actual information. In St. Louis, for example, Margaret Sanger had to cancel a speaking engagement when Catholics threatened the theater owner with a permanent boycott. When the mayor of Boston began revoking the licenses of lecture hall owners who allowed advocates to discuss birth control on their premises, a local lawyer told Baldwin, that fighting the mayor in court would probably not improve freedom in Boston, because where the mayor's police could not go, gangs of Catholic youth could go instead. Kids, cancel culture ain't new. Back to young me. Both overt and covert Catholic opposition, 
would provide the third great problem for both birth controllers and civil libertarians during the 20s and 30s. The American Civil Liberties Union first became involved with the birth control movement in the early 1920s. The activism of Margaret Sanger among moderates and Emma Goldman among the radical intellectual set had inspired small gatherings of women to discuss the issue, at first privately and then in larger and more public groups, the Anne Hutchinsons of their day. On a number of occasions, police disbanded the meetings, employing the local equivalent to the Comstock Act to justify their actions. The ACLU responded to defend one such group of women in February 1922. Police had broken up a meeting in a room in New York City's town hall before any law was violated, but in anticipation that the gathered women would discuss birth control. Albert De Silver, representing the ACLU, testified that the proper time to intervene was as soon as the law was broken. At this stage, the union made no attempt to defend the right to advocate birth control, but only attacked police practice. That same winter, however, the first evidence appeared that the ACLU favored discussion about birth control. When the trustees of Cooper Union banned birth control rallies, the Silver wrote a letter of protest on behalf of the ACLU. Quote, It seems to us of the utmost importance that a great social question like birth control should be fully and freely discussed. We take the liberty of making this protest against your decision in the hope that the trustees may see fit to reconsider it. Within five years, the ACLU would defend a person's right to advocate in print the legalization of birth control. In 1927, Section 317 of the Penal Code of California stated that every person who willfully writes, composes, or publishes any notice or mean for the prevention of conception is guilty of a felony. On October 5, 1927, police arrested Carl Rave, a young Oakland carpenter who, together with his wife, had sold, by his own claim, 25,000 copies of Margaret Sanger's book, Family Limitation. Before the trial, Forrest Bailey, chairman of the ACLU, wrote Austin Lewis, an attorney with the ACLU helping in Rave's defense, to describe union policy. Our only official stand with reference to the birth control movement has been in defending the rights of speakers whose programs were interfered with by the police. Lewis said during the trial that the ACLU is not interested in birth control propaganda, but that Rave's constitutionally protected right to advocate birth control had been violated. Lewis's argument represented a significant departure from the position taken in 1922 when the union challenged only police practice and breaking up a meeting, not the law against expression per se. Within a year of the Carl Rave case, another advocate of birth control forced the ACLU to enunciate a more specific policy on the subject. In early 1928, a woman doctor named Konakow was arrested in Boston after she delivered a lecture using actual birth control devices as props. The matter was called to the attention of the civil libertarians in both Boston and New York. John S. Codman, a Massachusetts lawyer who devoted much of his practice to helping defendants the ACLU assisted, wrote Baldwin after a meeting of the Boston Committee of the Union to tell him that the Conoco matter came up, but we all agreed that it is not a civil liberties question. Baldwin concurred that the case is not a civil liberties issue 
because of the technical point of displaying devices. The director felt, however, that it is a good case to help repeal the Massachusetts law, and I hope some of you will assist in her defense. In 1928, Informal support was all the ACLU could lend the birth controllers. The union felt that its official stand must remain in the defense of the First Amendment. In a sympathetic letter to the American Birth Control League, Margaret Sanger was president, Baldwin wrote that the union must stay out of a case of this character because it does not involve an issue of free speech. In another letter to a friend of Conakow, written after the doctor's acquittal, Baldwin remarked that it is quite clear that we have to draw the line between expressions of opinion and advocacies on the one hand, and what is known in law as an overt act on the other. In a letter to George Rower, another ACLU attorney, Baldwin summarized his own feelings and the position of the union, quote, I heard about Dr. Conakow's arrest. She's doing a courageous piece of work. I'm not personally sorry that the issue has been raised, but I think it will be quite difficult for the civil liberties group there or for us here to defend her. The statute is perfectly clear, and from what you say, she's violated it. There isn't a chance that it will be held unconstitutional. It certainly ought to be repealed, but this is not the way to do it. Our official interest in such a matter ends with talk about it, and we cannot defend the display of forbidden devices. Dr. Konakow is in error in stating that we have ever defended the giving of contraceptive information. We've always defended persons who've been attacked in discussing birth control. So far as I know, no single case has arisen in which definite contraceptive information has been given from the platform or in print. Within a decade, the ACLU would rush to the defense of men and women who not only disseminated information on the prevention of pregnancy, but who imported illegal birth control devices. 1924 saw the beginning of a long struggle to win for birth controllers and others freedom to speak freely in Boston. Mayor Curley was intensely opposed to the Massachusetts Birth Control League and threatened to revoke the license of any lecture hall owner that allowed advocates of birth control to speak, particularly Margaret Sanger. Curley did not hesitate to unleash his police on any group he happened to detest. He put an end to meetings of the Ku Klux Klan also. Baldwin's office in New York worked closely with both Sanger's group and the birth control movement in Boston, a small cadre of the wealthy and educated that would take a public stand, for almost eight years to strip Curley of his power. Either the mayor's threats or bad luck conspired to thwart all attempts to find a lecture hall and sponsors suitable for an appearance by Margaret Sanger. Eventually, a new mayor who believed that free discussion of pressing social issues was desirable entered office. Birth controllers met less official opposition, and so it became impossible for the ACLU to force a test of the legality of Curley's actions. The long process of arranging such a meeting with Sanger in Boston was significant in that it sparked a continuing correspondence between the two groups. As far as is determinable from the ACLU archives, the union was involved only sporadically with the birth controllers when there were specific violations of personal freedom until 1924. The Boston problem then became a 
semi-permanent inspiration for dialogue between the two groups. Informal advice would flow from Baldwin and others within the Union to Sanger's group, and by the early 30s, civil libertarians would deploy their growing political muscle to lobby for birth controllers. By the beginning of the 1930s, advocates of legal contraception were ready to go on the offensive. Many of the existing state and local laws were impossible to enforce. The heading from the first chapter of Mary Ware Dennett's book, Birth Control Laws, published in 1926, quote, The actual situation under federal and state law, not even parents can lawfully inform their married children about how to space their babies. No doctor can lawfully or adequately study the control of conception. Access to birth control information is not only criminal, but classed with obscenity. Control of conception, confused with abortion, not a crime to control parenthood, but a crime to find out how. The anti-birth control legislation of the time has been compared with prohibition. The enforcement was sufficiently weak to allow innocent people to fall victim to unscrupulous peddlers of information and devices. But it was strong enough to ensure that safe contraception would be somewhat monopolized by the upper classes. The need for reform was becoming obvious. The American Civil Liberties Union broadened its role in the early years of the Depression. In the fall of 1930, Sanger's organization, now called the National Committee on Federal Legislation for Birth Control, began a search for members of Congress to introduce a bill that would liberalize restrictions on birth control information. In a letter to an officer of the National Committee, Baldwin offered the union's support. Quote, If a birth control bill were introduced, what support are you planning to get from other organizations? We would be glad to help in any way we can. Sanger took him up on his offer, and on November 11, 1930, asked Baldwin for advice on whom to ask to sponsor the legislation. Baldwin offered Robert LaFollette of Wisconsin and Bronson Cutting of New Mexico, but added that any man from a strong Protestant district in the North might be helpful. Eventually, a sponsor was found in Massachusetts Senator Frederick Gillett, and his bill, S-4582, entered the Committee on the Judiciary for Hearings. Back to me. Frederick Gillett, born in 1851, had been first elected to the Senate in 1924 at age 74. At the time, he was the oldest person first elected to the Senate, a record that would stand for 98 years until Peter Welsh's election for Vermont only last year in the midterm elections of 2022. Back to young me. The Gillett Bill was essentially amendments to the Tariff Act and to the criminal code which would exempt physicians from the provisions of the Comstock Act. Sanger solicited and promptly received the official support of both the ACLU and Roger Baldwin. There was, however, dissent. The reformist nature of the bill was offensive to purists among both civil libertarians and birth controllers. Mary Weir Dennett, head of the Voluntary Parenthood League, attacked Sanger vigorously. Protests within the ACLU came from John Codman, quote, I notice in Bulletin 442 for release on February 5th, that the union has endorsed a federal bill legalizing the distribution of birth control information, etc. It's not clear to me that we are not going outside of our province in endorsing this bill. If the claim is made that it's wholly a free speech matter, 
then why limit information to responsible doctors, etc., as stated in the bulletin? I feel that it would be a great mistake to have the union in any way tied to the birth control movement. A letter Baldwin wrote to Dennett in 1934 best expresses his response to criticisms like Codman's, quote, So in the field of birth control, while we oppose any restrictions in principle and tactics, we've got to accept whatever modifications are presented. We cannot take on that highly specialized fight, but we will endorse any bill by anybody which attacks it from a practical standpoint. In the spring of 1932, the ACLU appeared on a list of 16 organizations that support the principles of birth control, along with such company as the American Eugenics Society, the New York Godmothers League, the Daughters of the American Revolution, and the League for Industrial Democracy. Baldwin and his friends did not stop at mere endorsement of the Gillett Bill. They dispatched letters to liberals and conservatives alike throughout Congress, and the bill survived the Judiciary Committee. It eventually met an inglorious death on the House floor, 172 to 76, but the ACLU had turned to public lobbying for contraception. Its role would continue to grow. In early April 1932, Frank W. Hancock of North Carolina introduced H.R. 11082, The bill would have allowed physicians, hospitals, and public health agencies to give birth control information. On April 18th, Sanger wrote Baldwin and Forrest Bailey to ask the ACLU to sign a resolution endorsing the principles of birth control to write an official opinion on the subject that might be placed on record together with the other statements and to send a representative to the hearing. On April 19th, Baldwin told Sanger that he thought the ACLU would endorse the bill. I think our committee will support it if you really want our support. Do you think it will do more good than harm? After Baldwin met with his committee, he informed Sanger, quote, We want to tell the Senate and House committees that we would go further than your bill. By taking out of the statute all references to birth control and contraceptive devices, but that we support your bill as a step in the direction we are headed. We don't want to do that if it will be confusing. And yet we cannot take a position in support of your bill without stating our general position on the prohibition of birth control matter in the mail. If this is going to be embarrassing, you'd better count us out. Both of these quotations point to a willingness on the part of Baldwin and the ACLU leadership to help Sanger's group achieve its political goals. The coordination between the two groups was significant, inasmuch as the ACLU was acting against the position it had taken during the 1920s. At that time, the union claimed no public stance whatsoever on the merits of birth control propaganda, and it confined its private lobbying to appeals for public discussion as a matter of good policy. By 1932, the union had publicly endorsed the principles of birth control, written letters on organizations stationary to members of the Congress, and formed political ties with the largest birth control interest group for the purposes of strategy. The involvement did not go unnoticed by the public. Opponents of birth control wrote the union to protest its stand. So did many who approved. An interesting letter came to Baldwin from the South Slavic Women Workers Educational Club. 
which claim that information on birth control is withheld from working class mothers by the capitalist government in order to guarantee a large labor supply for further exploitation. The argument was in part very reasonable. Many felt that the illegality of birth control information confined it to the educated, wealthy classes. As the 30s wore on, civil libertarians would expand further their role in the movement to legalize the dissemination of information on contraception. 1933 brought a period of conservative reaction to birth control that would threaten the easing of the public attitude that had taken place over the last decade. On March 16th, a legislator in the Wisconsin legislature named O'Malley introduced a bill that would prohibit the sale or distribution of information on birth control even by doctors, except to prevent communicable diseases. Margaret Sanger claimed that, quote, the bill classes abortion with contraception, indicating complete ignorance of the subject on the part of the author. Passage of this bill would mean that physicians would be unable to give contraceptive advice to those suffering from tuberculosis, heart disease, or any ailments which are not communicable. Interjection. We see similar arguments made today around the difficulty of framing laws that constrain doctors, not just in this area. This is not a new topic. Back to young me. The bill passed over the opposition of the ACLU, which lobbied hard for its defeat, arguing that it was an unjustifiable restriction on freedom of speech. It's interesting to note that the union disclaimed in a press release any position on the merits of the birth control question. It appears that the ACLU altered its stance to lend credibility to its lobbying effort. By the spring of 1933, the union had more than once embraced birth control as itself worthwhile, and not merely the freedom to distribute information. Soon, the ACLU would defend the possession of devices intended to aid in contraception. Milwaukee police arrested John and Adele Gordon on March 21, 1935. The couple had run a respectable birth control clinic for several years. Police charged them with the possession of illegal birth control devices in violation of the recently passed O'Malley Law. The ACLU stepped forward and offered to assist in the defense of the Gordons. A jury acquitted the couple before the help could arrive, but civil libertarians had, for the first time, involved themselves in the defense of someone charged with the possession of actual devices. The union's willingness to intervene had grown considerably in the seven years since the Conakow case. The middle 30s brought considerable friendly association between the two groups. Baldwin and the ACLU helped sponsor a celebration of the 21st anniversary of the birth control movement in America, held at the Waldorf. Baldwin expressed personal interest in a signature drive to find support for a federal birth control bill. So Florence Rose, Sanger's secretary, sent him 20 petitions along with some routine correspondence. In general, the union provided casual advice and commentary when scattered local problems arose. In 1937, for instance, the Boston police arrested a number of well-to-do women for running a chapter of the Massachusetts Birth Control League and dispensing information about the prevention of pregnancy. The ACLU reacted quickly. An internal memo dated August 12, 1937, reveals how very much the association's attitudes had changed in even five years. Quote, 
It occurred to me that the very prosecutions themselves constituted denials of civil liberties and that the ACLU ought to interest itself in them, even though the police have not done anything in the course of raids or otherwise that would also constitute additional infringements of civil rights. It seems to me that the American Civil Liberties Union might well be a party to organizing public opinion in Boston so that Massachusetts does not continue to remain many years behind the times with respect to birth control. In late 1934, Dr. Hannah Stone, a woman active in Sanger's group, sued to recover from U.S. Customs birth control devices she imported for research purposes. Stone won, and on December 8, 1936, after a victory over a U.S. appeal, the New York Herald Tribune reported, quote, The importation of birth control articles as recognized medical implements in protecting life and health was upheld yesterday by the United States Court of Appeals in a unanimous decision. While ruling directly only on the matter of importation, the court approved the sale and carriage by mail of contraceptives, which might intelligently be employed by conscientious and competent physicians for the purpose of saving life or promoting the well-being of their patients. Mrs. Margaret Sanger, president of the National Committee on Federal Legislation for Birth Control, regarded the decision as ending her 20-year fight for legal acceptance of contraceptives. Over a 15-year period, the American Civil Liberties Union molded its tactics to changes in public opinion. The American Birth Control League presented a package of reforms that appealed to powerful ACLU leaders who developed a personal stake in the movement to legalize contraceptive information and devices. There were even experts on the subject within the union. In October 1937, Harriet Pilpel, a young lawyer in the firm of Greenbaum, Wolf, and Ernst, which had defended many clients assisted by the ACLU, wrote to Hazel Rice, a union member, quote, In the last 11 years, we've witnessed significant changes in the legal status of birth control itself and the dissemination of birth control information. There have been new laws, court decisions radically altering the meaning of old laws, inconsistent and nullifactory treatment of the subject by administrative law and law enforcement authorities, an about-face of the medical profession itself, and a question-begging compromise on the part of birth control's chief opponent, the Roman Catholic Church. The picture today is very different from the picture in 1926, and it presents an interesting social study of the effects of morality and gag legislation. Above all, civil libertarians showed that they knew how to support a cause that they believed in, while remaining at least ostensibly true to the principle that an unbiased defense of civil freedoms is absolutely essential to the liberty of all. Birth control provided a liberal issue that could easily hide behind a defense of the First Amendment. Back to old me. Longstanding and attentive listeners know that I'm something of a crank on the question of free speech. So I was delighted to be reminded that I was writing on the topic as an undergraduate more than 40 years ago. Also, this was, in fact, the only time that I'd done original archival research. So the history podcaster in me is kind of proud of that. My advisor, the legal scholar Walter Murphy, suggested that I submit it for publication. That would, however, have required a trip to Smith College to look through Margaret Sanger's papers. 
And in any case, I didn't really have that sort of ambition then. Now I think I missed an opportunity. There's obviously much more that might be discussed about the broader topic. Margaret Sanger was not moved only by feminist ideals of bodily autonomy. Her motives, like many in the early population control movement, were also influenced by racism and eugenics, a point made most loudly today by opponents of Planned Parenthood, the organization she eventually would found. Obviously, neither birth control per se, nor Margaret Sanger's less attractive motives were the principal subjects of the paper or this episode. However, given the recent project on the social right to revive the -the still-on-the-books Comstock Act of 1873, it seemed important to remember that there was a time less than a century past when not only information about contraception was unlawful, but simply discussing birth control in the abstract would invite a visit from the police. Long before the full realization of our rights under the First Amendment, which would not reach its peak until the 1970s, the American Civil Liberties Union teamed up with advocates of lawful birth control to fight for the right of women to prevent pregnancy, and in doing so, expanded the right of free speech for everybody. If only the ACLU were so committed to free speech today. Fortunately, we now have the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression, known as FIRE, which longstanding listeners know is a cause of mine. There are other aspects of this story that ought to interest Americans today. The ACLU confronted internal dissent over the interpretation of its mission, as probably happens today. We saw that cancel culture is nothing new and also needs to be resisted, then as now. Also then as now, the received wisdom was not always wise. The question of birth control divided the elites, Even among the highly educated producers of the culture, as it were, many people oppose lawful birth control or even the discussion of it, since birth control in those days consisted mostly of information. On the other side, many of the supporters of lawful birth control did so for reasons that almost all Americans would find deplorable today. It was a time of rising nativism and racism here and elsewhere in the world. Some, if not most, proponents of birth control hoped it would control the growth of population, especially of the poor and people with backgrounds they deemed undesirable. And yet, those of us who might have had sex a time or two, hoping that it would not result in a pregnancy, are grateful that they did. So are people who support free speech, even by other people with whom they disagree. History is complicated. Thank you again for listening to the History of the Americans podcast. I love getting emails from you guys. Please keep them coming. You can reach me with questions, corrections, eruptions of indignation, perhaps more than usual for this episode, or pats on the back on the contact page for the website, thehistoryoftheamericans.com, or by email at thehistoryoftheamericans at gmail.com. You can buy the books I mentioned through the links in the episode notes on the website, no books this time, and follow me on Twitter, X, to stay up to date and sample my musings on mostly history-related topics. Until next time.